Hello, I'm Darius McDermott from Fund Calibre, and this is the Investing on the Go podcast. Today, I'm joined by Ben Moore, co-manager on the elite-rated Threadneedle European Select Fund. Ben, hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's our absolute pleasure. Thank you for taking the time. Um, and what a time it has been. Uh, stock markets have had a, an incredible time, as has the broader economy. Tell us a little bit about your portfolio, how it's done through um, you know, the, 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 the tough calendar year we've had in 2020. And what changes did you make in the height of the pandemic and thereafter, if any at all? Yeah, as you say, it's been an absolutely incredible year in in so many ways. Um, in terms of performance, um, we've outperformed the index for the year as a whole so far. Although, as you know, it's, it's never a straight line. No. Uh, as it stands today, we're about ten percent ahead of the index. Um, in terms of our approach, um, that really hasn't changed at all. Uh, so. The strategy, as you know, has been in place for such a long time, and we continue to do really exactly what it says on the tin. Um, I guess I would say, because there's been so much volatility this year, there have been a few more opportunities in terms of buying and selling, just because of the extreme price moves. So there's been a bit more activity, but we, we definitely haven't changed how we think about investing fundamentally. And look, I'm not surprised to hear that you haven't changed, but did the volatility in markets have give you opportunity for some of your type of stocks? Did some stocks that were overvalued in your opinion become more reasonably valued or did you have some things which may have been affected by uh, the pandemic, which with a fair lens you couldn't have seen as we came into 2020? Yeah, I think that's a, it's all, all interesting points. I guess um, the, the, to, to your point on opportunities, uh, we're very specific about the types of companies that we'll invest in. And we can, we can go into that, but I'm sure, I'm sure you're familiar with that. Um, so there have been a bunch of companies that we've wanted to own for a long time, but they've been out of reach in terms of how expensive they were. And there have been some moments where we have got opportunities. Um, and similarly, there have been some stocks in the portfolio that are wonderful businesses, but um, have just become so extremely expensive that we've considered them less attractive as investments, and we've we've trimmed those. So, so there, there have been both of those. The only thing I would add to that is that the movements have been so extreme and so quick that actually we often haven't been able to build meaningful enough positions in companies we would want to because the price has, has moved against us so quickly. Yeah, yeah that's, that's um, not that uncommon, I guess, in, 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 as you say, extreme and volatile markets. So whilst you've had a consistent approach, um, there's not many fund managers, or a few, but not many fund managers I know who don't say they invest in quality companies. And quality does have different definitions to different managers. Maybe if you tell the listeners about what quality means to you. I think that's an extremely good point. I think um, 
quality, growth, and value are all uh, terms that are slightly overused um, by by investors in general. Um, because the strategy is is so particular about the types of business that we'll own, we do have a, a clear definition of quality um, as we see it. Um, we see three dimensions basically. The first of those is is growth, and it doesn't need to be secular growth. We're very comfortable owning cyclical businesses, but we we really need to have conviction that a company will be bigger in five years' time. The the second attribute is return on invested capital, which is a a, a mouthful, but it's really about how cash generative the business is and how effectively the management team allocates capital with acquisitions or inorganic growth. Sorry, Sorry, just before we we go on, because you rightly say it is a bit of a mouthful. Do you think we could help maybe slightly de-jargonize that? Because I hear that a lot in my job, and I'm sure you do when you're talking to management of companies. So this is taking capital and doing earnings that they make and doing what with it. What type of thing are we talking about for returns Uh, on invested capital? let Let me split that in two parts. Let me talk about organic return on invested capital and inorganic return on invested capital. Yeah. Uh, the example I think that sums it up most clearly in my mind is a teenage Warren Buffett installing a pinball machine in a barber shop. And after a month, I believe it was, he took the amount of money that people had spent on the pinball machine. He divided it between himself and the guy who owned the barbershop. And with that money, with his share, he was able to buy another pinball machine. And with that pinball machine, that was then spitting out money that he was then able to go and buy another pinball machine. As soon as he had a cluster of pinball machines. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. So for me, it's about... You know, if you've got a business generating cash, how easily can you invest that money to expand your business? And there are some businesses like Buffett's pinball machine example, where after a month, he was able to double his business in size. But there are other businesses where you may need to invest in lots and lots of heavy equipment, expensive capital, just to eke out a very small amount of growth. So that is organic returns on invested capital. Inorganic returns on invested capital is then a question of acquisitions. And this is a little bit more intangible because it takes a lot longer to know if an acquisition was a good one or a bad one. But let me give L'Oreal as an example. L'Oreal bought Kiehl's when it was a much smaller business than than it is now. Because L'Oreal is a global cosmetics skincare platform, they were able to plug Kiehl's, an American skincare brand, into their global portfolio. And they were able to grow the business very significantly. And it became a very accretive acquisition. Maybe one more example. Campari that we're invested in took the money that they were making with Campari and other drinks to buy a little spirits business in Northern Italy called Aperol. And with Aperol, they were able to expand that business into a global brand with tremendous success. The business is still growing even 
even through the current environment. And that's buying it and using their own platform of marketing and distribution to really grow the, the acquired asset. That's exactly right. So again, then, it comes back to what does a company do with the cash that they're generating? Okay, so that was the return on invested capital before I interrupted you. And then the third point or the third thing that the, you might look the for? The third, in a way, is, is the most intangible but the most valuable, which is sustainability, which really is about how long can a business sustain its current attractive economics? Is this business going to be competed away to a commodity type of business? Or is this a business that, in the, in the same way that Campari is now 150 years old and continues to be an absolutely vital ing- ingredient for most bartenders, is this business going to continue to defend its, its competitive advantage? And so, so th- those are the three criteria that we see as absolutely critical um, in our definition of quality. That's really interesting. Thank you very much, Ben. Looking through your recent fact sheets and presentations, I see the fund's largest overweight is industrials. Can you explain to our listeners what type of a company an industrial company is? I think they sometimes have very wide definitions. Uh, very happily, and I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because it's, it's one we get a lot. Um, I think when you think of industrials, um, you might think of some earnest metal bashing factory with lots of sparks flying around and lots of capital equipment and stuff like that. And in a way that would be quite unlike the type of business that we would want to own. Um, The industrials businesses that we own are actually much more asset light. Uh, And I'll give give two examples um, to illustrate that. The first would be we're invested in both Schindler and Kona, which are... um, two of the global lift companies. Um, And most of their profits actually come from maintenance contracts. So this is contractual service revenues. And there's there's no factory at all. Uh, It's it's guys driving around in vans, um, making sure that lifts comply with safety regulations and are functioning properly, etc. So it's an industrial in technical terms, but the economics of the business are really very far removed from that metal bashing example. Maybe the second example I'd give would be something like Brentag, which is a chemicals distribution business. They don't actually make any chemicals. It's a logistics business. They store chemicals and they distribute them from A to B as quickly and as cheaply as possible. But again, it's relatively asset light. So another area um, which I find interesting is payments. And I believe there's a stock called Worldline, which is in your top 10. Tell us a a little bit about that and which role in the payment chain that that has, because that's also been a fast growing industry as we've moved from a cash to a cashless society, not just because of the recent uh, pandemic, but that's a longstanding trend. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So I think Worldline is is really interesting. for on an organic basis and on an inorganic basis, going back to our conversation about capital allocation. Um, as you said, there is an increasing shift to paying less and less with cash and more and more digitally. And um, Worldline 
is is a payment processing business. So there is an organic trend that will benefit. But the other element that's really interesting about Worldline is that payment processing is in a way a scale game. And it's an it's a market that we think still needs to consolidate significantly in Europe. And what I mean by that is that there, there are still lots of banks that process the payments for their customers in-house. And they've got all of the payment infrastructure that you need to do that. What Worldline is able to do and is looking to do is to consolidate and, and drive an outsourcing trend away from the banks to a central platform that it manages so that it can enjoy the, the cost synergies from that. And we see that as a very clear growth, growth driver on top of the trend that you talked about of payments becoming more and more cashless. Well, that's a couple of really good examples. And then maybe just a final one, which has come from uh, a female colleague and may interest are female and maybe non-male uh, listeners as well, but it's about L'Oreal and you've already touched on them being a skincare business in a working from home environment and an environment now where we, for certainly for the foreseeable future, has to wear have to wear masks. How, how, how's L'Oreal holding up in, in the current climate? Yeah, um, so I, I think there are two, two elements to the challenge that L'Oreal has faced this year. The first has been, as you say, a, a demand challenge, um, which is in terms of whether or not people wear as much makeup or look after their skin as much as they, they did. And the second is, is a supply issue of um, hairdressing salons being closed, um, physical retail stores where you can go and try stuff being closed. Um, on, the, on the demand side, um, We've been surprised by how resilient that has been. Um, and that's partly a continuation of um, trends that we've seen for the last five to 10 years of people basically looking after themselves better. And so yeah. in terms of skincare, that means more elaborate, um, more elaborate routines and more products. Um, from, from a supply perspective, where L'Oreal has executed phenomenally well is that they have a very, very strong online business. And so I think online could be around 25% of the company's turnover this year. And so in a way, they've been able to leapfrog a lot of the physical retail limitations this year in order to meet customer demand. And thank you very much for that roundup. I think we've covered quite a lot from growth um, return on invested capital. I think that's been one of the best explanations maybe I've heard and hopefully our listeners. Um, we've talked about industrials and lifts and payments and, and skincare. So I think that's been really interesting. And of course, all these types of uh, investment opportunities are available on listed equities to you in Europe. So Ben, let me thank you very much. That's Ben Moore, co-manager of the Elite Rated Threadneedle European Select Fund. Thank you. Thank you, Darius. Uh, if you'd like to get further information on the fund, please visit fundcaliber.com or please do subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast at your usual podcast supplier. 
Please remember, we've been discussing individual stocks to bring investing to life for you. It is not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these stocks at the time of listening.